Okay, well every blessing to you all and welcome back to my open air pulpit. Another brisk and uh, somewhat blustery day, but uh, let's continue, if we may, as we work our way through the book of Genesis. And last week we concluded at uh, Genesis 4, 26, and I want to read it again to set the context for today's message. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, when it comes to the scripture, when it comes to trying to understand how people get saved, it does appear to me, especially if you take the time to read Acts of the Apostles, that the Lord is going to dispense grace to different people in different ways. But it's still grace. And if you read Acts very carefully, you will find that different people were approached different ways. But nevertheless, they all got saved the same way, through grace. So here, Seth, Adam and Eve's third son, a good son, if you will. Uh, their first son was a murderer, and he's a type of the devil. He would kill Abel, who's a type of Christ. And the Lord allowed Cain's line to just come to an end. And he would allow uh, Abel to become the first martyr, if you will, back in Genesis. But there's a turning point. You see, every generation of scripture seems to end in failure. Like I said last time, at the end of Genesis, it speaks about a coffin. At the end of Malachi, it speaks about a curse. Before Paul had even died, over in Acts chapter 20, he speaks about certain people that would creep in unawares, unnoticed, and seek to devour the flock, seek to draw disciples unto themselves. So, something starts off well, and then it falls. And the Lord starts again, then it falls. And the Lord starts again, so on and so forth. It's a bit like that scripture from John chapter 1, how the darkness couldn't comprehend the light. And if you go into a dark room and just flash a torch into such a place, you know what I'm speaking about. And to Seth, Adam and Eve's third son, credited to Jehovah, not the, Satan, not the, uh, the serpent, like I said last week, some people think that the serpent was able to uh, impregnate Eve, a very bizarre uh, belief, but nevertheless, some people hold to such. To him also there was born a son, type of Christ, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. You want to be saved? Call upon the name of the Lord. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his death, burial, and resurrection. Go back to what I said a few moments ago. The Lord would dispense grace to different people in different ways. And I will get to that shortly. But it's all grace. It's always going to be grace. I'll put it this way. Maybe I'm getting, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself somewhat. <coughs> but that's okay. I've used this analogy in the past, and I use it very quickly now. Let's just say for argument's sake that certain groups of people were saved by their faith and works. And for those of us living today in the church age, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, which is absolutely correct. Now, let's just say for argument's sake that the Old Testament crowd were saved by their faith and works, which some people hold to. Just pitch this for one moment, if you will. We all arrive in eternity, and you've got the church age saints, the Old Testament age saints, and we start speaking about the blood, the blood of Christ. And we say, those of us which were saved in the church age, how blessed we are, how grateful we are, 
that Christ saved us by his precious blood. And that's all we have to hope for. There's no blood, there's no salvation. And you've got the Old Testament saints saying, well, we were saved by faith and works. We were saved by keeping the Sabbath. We were saved by what we ate or what we didn't eat. We were saved by doing this and doing that, so on and so forth. Can you imagine how that would go? I mean, talk about a two-tier system. I mean, it's bad enough when you get into the clergy and the laity set up, which is just about everywhere. But to think about such a conversation, to just comprehend or envisage such a conversation up in heaven, it's too much. It's going to be grace from uh, creation to Calvary. It's going to be grace from Calvary to the rapture. It's going to be grace from the rapture to the end of the tribulation. And it's going to be grace from the end of the tribulation into the end of the millennium. 5.1. This is a book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him, male and female, created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. So once again, there's a great picture there of responsibility. It's all very well, creating mankind in the image of the triune God, but that comes with responsibility. And even those people that are alive today and are unsaved are still going to be judged based on how they lived, of course, like from a moral perspective, but also what they did on planet Earth, how they treated planet Earth. But put it this way, if you think of a man and a woman getting married, okay, they have a child, and that child is a girl. Straight away, nearly every single time, unless of course her parents are somewhat uh, unusual, she will take her father's surname. She grows up, she gets married, she takes her husband's surname. They have children, and it starts all over again. So when it comes to a woman's identity, as far as the scripture is concerned, yes, of course, she has an identity, and it's always worth making the case that the first person that would see the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Messiah, was a lady, Mary. But when it comes to identity per se, her full identity, if you will, is either found in her father or in her husband father or husband. If she's not married, then she will have to come under someone's covering, which I may get to a little later. Male and female created them, no mention of evolution, and blessed them, like the seventh day, and called their name Adam. So Eve is Mrs. Adam, if you will. And if you think of that analogy one more time of a couple getting married and the couple having a child like a daughter, like a girl, and she grows up and gets married and takes her husband's surname. You get the idea. In the day when they were created. So if you think of feminism very quickly, it doesn't actually work. In fact, I can think of two very well-known feminists, one in America, one in Britain, who I think hate men, quite honestly. Both are married, interestingly enough, but I think they both hate men. And yet, they both got children, and surprise, surprise, both their children have taken their father's surname. Interesting, isn't it? 
jump over to chapter 6. Chapter 6, take a look, if you will, at verse 3, please. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his day shall be an hundred and twenty years. So he puts man on the earth, and he gives man a commission. And of course man blows it. And he would challenge Adam and Eve to come clean, and they blew it. He would challenge Cain to come clean, and he blew it. And we can take those passages, and I will for this morning, and apply those spiritually to anyone who isn't yet saved. He's going to challenge you to come clean. He's going to challenge you to repent. He's going to challenge you to confess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. So, due to sin increasing, due to rebellion being just about everywhere, much like today, the Lord has decided to start the clock, the countdown, if you will. The day of reckoning is about to begin. He would wait for a long time. He doesn't just jump into a situation and devour people up. If you think of that account from the Gospels, when uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were infuriated that the Samaritans didn't want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he had to clip their wings. And he said that he hadn't been sent to destroy men's lives, but to save such lives. Five, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that sound like you? Do you realize, if you're not saved, and I gave the scripture from Jeremiah some weeks ago, how your heart is desperately wicked, full of poison, your tongue, if you're saved, one moment is worshiping the Lord, blessing the Lord, and the next minute it is cutting someone to shreds. Your heart is no good. Even after you are saved, your heart is still no good. Yes, you get a new birth, you get a new heart in a spiritual sense, but Paul speaks about bringing every imagination, every thought captive to our Lord and Saviour, because if we allow ourselves, we will go into neutral and eventually crash and hit the buffers and spend a lot of time as a result out of fellowship with Almighty God. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, the innate depravity of man, it's in all of us, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you think back to how it was for you before you got saved, it doesn't take long to remember, does it, just how wicked you were. And you might say, well, James, I've been saved for a long period of time now, and by the grace of God, I no longer do this, or I no longer do that. And that's great. Praise the Lord for that. But I guarantee you a couple of things. Number one, I guarantee you that you still fail in this area or that area. And I guarantee you that you fail in other areas of your life, which only you know about. Don't kid yourself. Six, six. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Repentance, there's that word again, repent. 
Have you repented? Or do you know what repentance means? Well, in essence, it means to be sorry for who you are and what you are. And here the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is grieved. And if there's one thing I really love about the Scriptures, and there are many things, of course, but if there's one thing that I really love about the Scriptures, it's that it presents Lord in a very honest light. It tells us the good about the Lord. It tells us like when he is grieved, like from 6.6, and it also tells us about mankind. It doesn't shy away from speaking about man at his worst state, never mind his best state, but at his worst state, and also it describes in great detail how Almighty God was grieved, like Christ weeping over Jerusalem. You think of the Apostle Paul weeping from Acts chapter 20, and I made that uh, statement a few moments ago, concerning false prophets that would creep into the church. They would come from within, not without. Paul was a very emotional man, much like the Lord. But here the Lord is grieved at his heart, in his heart, because he made man on the earth. Now, of course, he knew how this was going to go. Don't get the wrong idea. Don't read this piece of scripture and think, well, if it was going to be so bad all along, why did he make man in the first place? Why bother? Well, yes, it's true. Every generation seems to end in apostasy. Read the scriptures very carefully especially the book of Jeremiah, which I was able to spend four hours looking at over the last few weeks. It starts off very positive, but it ends in apostasy. But the great promise made in Matthew 16, how the gates of hell would never prevail over the church, still remain to this present day. The body of Christ will go through all sorts of problems, all sorts of tests and trials and tribulations, but it will always come through. It will never collapse. Seven, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and a creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I made them. So because this is the Lord's earth, because he ultimately controls this earth, like I said last time, 24-7, it spins at a particular speed. The sun comes up and goes down. The moon does what it needs to do, so on and so forth. He is quite at liberty to do what he chooses to do. He doesn't just create the earth and sit back and allow it to run its own course. I mean, that, that doesn't work in reality. If you think of a car, you buy a car, you don't expect the car to run itself. You have to service the car. You have to put petrol into the car. You have to wash the car. You have to take the time to look after your car. Otherwise, it will just collapse it will just break down, it will just rust away. The same is true of yourselves. You get up in the morning, you wash, you shave, you get dressed, you start the day. You don't expect someone to come in and do that for you. But some people don't like the idea of the Lord doing what he is about to do. They think he should just sit back and allow mankind to run the show. Well, to some extent, that is exactly what he does do. And because he allows men to do what man wants to do, that's why we have so many problems in the world today. In fact, listen, I remember reading an article some years ago about the amount of food that goes around the world. And I read this article and it made the case that I think it argued quite uh, clearly to me and quite correctly to me that there is enough food 
to go around the world three times over, more than enough food. But because governments are greedy, because the producers of food are greedy, many times if they don't get the money that they want for their food, they just discard it. And they throw milk into the sea. It's an absolute disgrace. And people say, but where's your God? People are starving to death. Well, some people are. Where is he? Well, he's, he's, he's never gone anywhere. He's never gone anywhere. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say on the one hand, we shine this man to reign over us, and then turn around and say, but where is the Lord? When people get into trouble, this is the consequence of being, giving the, being, being given the uh, title deeds to the earth, if you will. Temporarily, of course, and when you get to Revelation, Christ comes back to reclaim the title deeds. Let's keep reading on. In fact, the latter part of verse 7 speaks about the Lord, creep, uh, the Lord uh, about to destroy the creeping thing, fowls of the air, and the beast, so on and so forth. And you say, why would that be? Well, it goes back to Adam and Eve being, giving, being given the right, the privilege to govern and that would be given vicariously to their descendants, and because they would mess up, and it says how every imagine, every heart, every one of their thoughts was evil, every single day from verse 5, it no doubt leads into bestiality. It's bad enough when man does what he shouldn't do with mankind. It's even worse when it involves animals, and that's why I think the Lord would destroy every man off the face of the earth, and many animals excluding, of course, those that would make it safely onto the ark. Verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a great piece of scripture, right in the midst of apostasy, right in the midst of wickedness, right in the midst of rebellion. A man called Noah appears from nowhere, and it says how he found grace, like God's righteousness at Christ's expense, in the eyes of the Lord. So one more time, whether you want to start with Adam or Abel, whether you want to start with Seth or Noah, anyone, man or woman, either testament that was ever mentioned and would ever do anything remarkable for the Lord, would do so as a result of the Lord's grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. If you're you're saved, you found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But like I say, grace can be dispensed in different ways. For Noah, he had no notion of Christ. He had no notion of a literal temple with a priest system. Whereas those of us which are saved in the church age don't need a priest system. We don't need uh, the understanding of a temple of any kind, because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Keep your hand in uh, Genesis chapter 6 and go over to Exodus 33. Now the wind is picking up. When I left to drive up here not long ago, the wind wasn't too strong, but uh, as always, once I arrive and set up, it's a whole different ballgame. Exodus 33, look at verse 12, if you will, please. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast 
also found grace in my sight, the first mention of Moses, finding grace in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse 13, please. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. And consider that this nation is thy people. Second mention to Moses, finding grace in the sights of the Lord. Jump down to verse 16, please. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the face, from all the people that's upon the face of the earth. Third mention of Moses and the children of Israel, finding grace in the sight of the Lord. 17, and the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. What a great scripture. He knows you by name. If you are saved, he knows you by your name. He knows every star that exists up there in the solar system. And if you are saved, he knows you by name. But if you don't know his name, then how can you be saved? Go back to Genesis, please. Genesis, um, still in chapter 6. Go down to verse 17, please. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth <coughs> to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. And it means just that. Think of the Lord, if you will, as an employer or as a landowner. Think of the Lord as someone with authority. And therefore, as such, he can do whatever he chooses to do. But also keep this in mind as well, that although the Lord was very angry with those in the, day, in the days of Noah, and still is, he would still give mankind time to repent, and he would do so via the ark. <coughs> but here the consequences are going to go not just towards mankind. In other words, mankind won't only experience what is about to occur, but so too will the animal world, going back to perhaps the belief held by some, including myself, that bestiality was being practiced during these dark days, and therefore the Lord would destroy man and beast as a warning to others. Also, of course, if you think of livestock, there is value in livestock. You know, if you buy a horse, or if you buy a cow, or if you buy a pig, or if you buy a sheep, or whatever animal comes to mind, there is value uh, when it comes to owning such livestock. So to lose livestock is a huge hit, but that, of course, is a consequence of being a wicked, rebellious sinner. Go to chapter 7, please. Chapter 7, and uh, look at verse 13, if you will. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, nor the cattle after their kind. And every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And every fowl 
after his kind, every bird of every sort. <coughs> Excuse me. So Noah would build the ark. It would take him around 120 years. And like I say, as he was building the ark, his neighbors were no doubt observing him very carefully, like people observe us when we go into the streets. And they watch us very carefully. And just standing on a street corner, giving out tracts, not opening your mouth necessarily, not preaching necessarily, just standing on a street corner, giving out tracts, is a indirect witness to unsaved people. And that does convict people of their sins. But to think that Noah would spend 120 years building this huge ark with his sons and people watching Noah, they would have grown up with him, and his sons would have grown up with their sons and their daughters. What a sight! And yet it resulted in no one outside of Noah and co being saved. But 14 speaks about every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, and every, bait and every bird of every sort, so on and so forth. So what the Lord's going to do is this. Yes, he could have wiped out planet Earth and started all over again. That would have been a major step back. That would have been a major victory for the devil. So what he does is he deals with sin, like he would do with Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, like he does with you and I when we uh, do what we shouldn't do. And he will allow uh, those that are on the earth a chance to repent, like 120 years to repent, like Cain, like Adam, like Eve, you understand, but they won't repent. And go back to Matthew 27 again, we shan't have this man to reign over us. So the Lord will say to himself, okay, fine, I will allow mankind one more chance before the final judgment comes, and it will come via a flood. At the same time, he will not only spare Noah, and his family, just eight souls, but he will save a number of animals. Because once this has passed, once the waters have receded, he wants mankind and the animal world that Noah was able to rescue to repopulate the earth. 21. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle, and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was a breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. So you think, how many people are we speaking about here? How many people can we suggest would have been caught up in this worldwide flood? And it was a worldwide flood, maybe 10 million maybe 15 million, I don't know the exact figure, but you're looking at over 1 to 5 million people, which pictures salvation, doesn't it? The road to hell is wide, the gate to heaven, the entrance to everlasting life is narrow, and few there be that find the gate. Few there be that go through the gate. Many are called, few are chosen. 23. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and the creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only 
remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. Get into the ark. The ark in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ in the New Testament. And Noah in the Old Testament is a type of tribulation saint who goes through the tribulation and is preserved like the 144,000 Jewish male uh, evangelists. They go through the tribulation. They are preserved. And then the Lord seems to rapture them. Revelation chapter 14. But they are safe in the ark of Christ. For the church age, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He saves us and he keeps us safe in himself. On top of that, once we get saved, not only are our bodies a temple of the Holy Ghost, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 3, and also 1 Corinthians 11, but the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit lives within inside us. You won't beat that. You won't beat that. If you think of any other religion on the face of the earth that comes anywhere near this, let me know. But I guarantee you that you won't find any other faith system on the face of the earth that comes anywhere near that. I mean, talk about loving. Talk about a loving creator. Not only does he give you everlasting life, not only will he pardon all of your past, present, and future sins, but on top of that, he comes to live with inside you. 8, 20. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I was able to finish Revelation 21 this past Sunday, and as always join me this coming Sunday when I look at uh, Revelation 22. And I made the case that if you think back to Jacob in Genesis, which I won't be able to look at this morning, but maybe two or three weeks' time, depending on how long this takes to complete. There's an account from 32, chapter 32, when he gets into some kind of wrestling match with the angel of the Lord, which of course is a Christophany, a pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ, and the angel of the Lord allows Jacob to prevail, overcome him. And of course, from Jacob comes Israel, but there's an account around chapter 32, 33 or thereabouts, where Jacob finds some stones, and he lays some stones. And those stones are a picture of the future temple. Fast forward to the New Testament, you've got the apostles and prophets built upon the foundation of the church, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. Or put it this way, you've got Simon Peter referred to as Cephas, meaning a stone, meaning a rock, meaning a pebble. So Old Testament saints start by finding literal stones and they lay them with the anticipation of one day being a part of a physical temple. New Testament, we have no physical temple. New Testament, we have no need of a physical church building because we are the church. So therefore, for those of us which are saved today, we are built on a spiritual church, a spiritual foundation with the apostles again and the prophets, Old Testament, and Jesus Christ being the complete foundation of our church. And I made the case that when we get into New Jerusalem, there is no temple in New Jerusalem because the temple 
is for the children of Israel, the new earth, of course. For those of us which are saved today, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, and when we get into New Jerusalem, the Lamb and the Father are going to be the temple. But 820 speaks about Noah building an altar unto the Lord. So Seth would be the first to explicitly build an altar unto the Lord. Abel, of course, was the first to offer a decent sacrifice, no doubt a lamb, picturing Christ, of course, and that infuriated Cain because Cain, a type of Satan, a type of the Antichrist, wanted to approach Jehovah his own way. Much like people today want to approach Jehovah. They want to do so via a church system. They don't like the idea that Christ has done it all for them. And you'll be surprised how many people that offer themselves as being saved actually hate the idea that Christ has done it all for them. They want to dress up. They want to be called Father. They want people to bow down to them. And sadly, people are quite happy to bow down to them. In fact, I made the case a few moments ago about a couple of well-known feminists. And one of those feminists, a British feminist, is a Roman Catholic. And it's very interesting because, like I say, people such as her have a hatred for man, and yet this woman has children. Her children have taken her husband's surname, and yet this woman is a Roman Catholic. And I've watched over the years when she goes to Rome, and she bows down to the Pope. She kisses his ring. She calls him Holy Father. Talk about an inconsistent woman. But here, Noah has built an altar, and he has sacrificed on the altar to the Lord. He is very grateful that he and his family have been spared. But people say, well, I don't like the idea of animal sacrifice. I don't, like, I don't like the idea of such a bloody sacrifice. Well, put it this way. Either you, if you lived in the Old Testament, sacrificed an animal on behalf of your sins or on behalf of yourself and your family's sins, or you sacrifice yourself. It's going to be one of the two options. Either you find an animal and sacrifice that animal during the Old Testament, to show the Lord that you were sorry for your sins, or you sacrifice yourself. But if you go for the latter option, just be mindful of a couple of things. If you want to take the chance and stand in the presence of the Lord when you die, and you will die, when he looks at you, he will judge you down to every word, thought, and deed. And he will look at you, when I say he, I mean Jesus Christ, and he will say to you, no doubt, you see these hands, and he will show you the prints in his hands, and he might show you where the spear went through his side, he may show you his feet, where they nailed him to a cross, and I mean a cross, not a stake, unlike what the witnesses would have you believe, and he will say to you, no doubt, did you live like I lived? And, of course, you will know within the first five seconds of being in his presence that, of course, you didn't live like, live like he lived. You were a reprobate. In fact, there is one suggestion which has been put by certain uh, dispensational brethren, a very interesting uh, view, that when people arrive in eternity, like unsaved people, not the saved, of course, because we have been forgiven, but when unsaved people arrive at the great white throne judgment, Satan 
is going to be able to interrogate them. And he will interrogate them in a, in a way that a prosecuting attorney will interrogate such people. If you think of any crime program that you've ever watched, maybe Perry Mason, I don't know, if you watch Perry Mason or any crime program, there's been so many made over the last 35, 40 years, but if you come across a crime program, or maybe you've seen a documentary, or maybe you, you have experience in the law courts, if you come across or if you read about a good prosecuting attorney, what he or she will do is find out all they can about you, and they will attack you in trial, in court, I should say, under oath, and you will be forced to answer their questions. Very awkward questions. And if you don't answer their questions, you'll be held in contempt of court. That's how serious it is. And I've watched many documentaries over the years, and I've read many accounts over the years, and I've watched different crime programs over the years where a good prosecuting attorney comes in and he just shreds the man or woman to pieces, and he will take as much time as he wants working such people over, breaking them down, and it's the job of the defense attorney to then come to their client's aid. Well, that's how it's going to be at the great white throne judgment. Like I say, the devil will be there. He doesn't go straight to hell. Not until the great white throne judgment has been and gone. And he will see what goes on. And it appears to me and some others, like I say, that he will be allowed to examine people and act in a sense of a, or in a way of a prosecuting attorney. And he knows all about you. You might think you know uh, what you are capable of, and your family may know the same, but when it comes to the devil, he's been around a long time. He knows all about you. Go to chapter 9. Chapter 9, look at verse 6, please. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man should his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Capital punishment, of course, and yet Cain was spared. What could have occurred? The Lord was gracious, hard to believe, isn't it, towards Cain. Because maybe in the back of the Lord's mind, of course he knew which way this was going to go, but maybe he thought that Cain would get saved. Maybe he thought Cain would repent. Of course, through foreknowledge, that was never going to happen, but the Lord at least allowed Cain the chance to repent. It's never too late for someone somewhere to repent. But most people don't want to be saved. The latter part of six, for in the image of God made he man. So, I made the case last time that, as I understand it, Saved or unsaved, mankind is made in the image of the Lord. And that's one of the reasons why there is so much suffering in the world today, like Syria, North Korea. Even in parts of Britain, there is great poverty. I went to America some years ago, and I was walking around Washington for a few days, a very nice parts of America to visit. And I thought, this is a great capital, very spread out like London, and I did enjoy my time in Washington, and yet I saw a lot of homeless people, a lot of poor people. And every so often I think about America, a great country, and yet why is there so much poverty in America? 
Why is there so much poverty in Britain? In fact, in Manchester, there was an outbreak maybe two or three weeks ago, you may have heard about it on the news, of a drug called Spice, and it is killing people. A lot of homeless people are hooked on this drug called Spice, and they are walking around like zombies. And I've seen some of these people. It's pretty frightening. Some of those people are homeless because of sin, of course, like those people I saw in Washington many years ago. But great country, America, Britain, a great country, not as great as it used to be, of course. And like America, there's, lots of, lot, there's much sin in America. But my point is this, man is made in the image of God. And that's why when I see these people on the streets of Manchester, hooked on drugs, begging, prostitution, and it's the same all over the world, I know. I know why it's occurring. A, because it's linked many times directly and indirectly to sin. But number two, because the devil knows that those people are made in the image of God. And he wants to cause them pain, of course, but ultimately he wants to cause the Lord pain. Jump down to verse 20. Now we get to an interesting account. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. Noah was a good man, like Job, but Noah wasn't a perfect man, like Christ. And I think there are several accounts to what I'm about to read over the next few moments. I think Noah was a good man. He was a man of righteousness. He preached godliness. He preached a message which honored the Lord. His light was limited compared to what we have several thousand years later. But I think one of his sons hated him. And it must be really bad if you are a preacher and you have children maybe two, maybe three, maybe four, and one of your children just hates you, despises you. And I think what we're about to read is what was going on behind the scenes. 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. So, no, so Noah has got drunk. His fault, no one else's fault. Nobody made him get drunk. But what would Christ say? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he gets drunk. And Ham, his son, has been made aware of Noah being drunk. And instead of going in and covering his father's dignity, he goes and tells his brothers without. 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. It wouldn't have taken five minutes to do that. It would have been the decent thing to do, to get a garment of some kind, a blanket of some kind, cover their father's dignity, like I say, and then disappear, like they were never there to begin with. But Ham has taken delight. Ham has taken delight in the fall of the righteous. And I don't like when I hear about someone who has fallen. I don't like it at all. And I can think of people that have crossed me over the years. 
And if you were to say to me, hey, guess what, James, such and such has just fallen, or such and such has got his comeuppance, or such and such has had their fingers burnt, I wouldn't be happy at all. I wouldn't rejoice at all. I wouldn't be happy to be told such a thing. Because if they could fall, I could fall. And doesn't Paul say, be careful uh, how you uh, stand? unless you should fall, a slight abbreviation. Let's keep reading on. 24. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done unto him. So there are two views as to what we're reading now. The first view, held by some people, um, sorry to say, is that Ham found his father naked, got some kind of kick, some kind of sexual kick, some kind of perverted kick, out of his father's nakedness and did something so wicked to him that I don't even want to mention it, but I will mention it because people have mentioned it over the years. They think that he sodomized his father. Now, I've never believed that. That doesn't ring true to me like the accounts of the serpents and Eve. I don't always understand why people have such beliefs, such views. But had that been the case, had Ham gone in and abused his father in such a vile way. Number one, you would have been told that because the scripture is very honest. It doesn't shy away from the innate depravity of man. And number two, it would have been put into the text as a warning for others not to do the same thing. 25, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. So I believe what happened is that Noah got drunk. Not intentionally, but it happened because, again, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And his son, Ham, must have been clapping his hands like Christmas has come early. Our father, this self-righteous preacher, not true, of course, but that's how Ham thought of Noah, has finally got his comeuppance. He's fallen from grace. Isn't it wonderful? And he goes and tells his brothers, thinking that they will perhaps enjoy seeing their father in such an awful situation. And they walk in backwards, don't even look at their father. They cover him with a blanket and they allow him to sober up and come around. I don't believe for one moment that Ham went in and abused his father in such a vile way. Listen. Fast forward to the end of Genesis, you read about Lot and his daughters, and I will get to them in a couple of weeks' time. What they did to their father is spoken of clearly in Scripture. The writer of Genesis, being Moses, didn't shy away from their wickedness. So why would he shy away from Ham's wickedness, if that is indeed what he would do? 27. God should enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So the consequence is going to be just that, that Shem will be the servant, or Canaan will be his servant, I should say. Japheth will be enlarged. He will dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan being Ham and his descendants, shall be his servant. Also from Ham, 
we believe is going to result in a line of perverts, probably leading up to the incidents when the angels come down from heaven to inspect the wickedness that was going on concerning Lot's neighbours. Let's keep reading on. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, look at verse 4, please. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Tower of Babel, meaning confusion. Fast forward to Babylon the Great, mystery harlot, mother of abomination, so on and so forth. Man wants to be a part of a system. Man doesn't want to be on his own. Man is desperate to be a part of something. And I guess one of the, wicked, the most uh, common problems that we continue to see all around us today is the ecumenical movement, the interfaith movement, people coming together and abandoning truth for unity, which of course is impossible. Five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Going back, of course, to their hearts being desperately wicked, the tongue being full of poison, unable to be tamed. One moment you are praising the Lord, save people, of course, and the next minute you are cutting people to shreds with your tongue. If you're unsaved, you are a walking corpse. But verse 4 is very interesting because I think, I wonder if this attempt to build a tower referred to as Babel was in some way a crude attempt to copy the pyramids. If you think of uh, Job, a very good man, not perfect, only Christ was perfect. No one since Christ or no one before Christ or since Christ has ever been perfect and never will be perfect. Your best is no good. But Job was a good man. In fact, Job is spoken of as being the greatest man in the East. And some people believe that he may have been the author, or I should say the uh, architect of the pyramids. Being a three, of course, and I've been to Egypt, and I've been into the pyramids, or one of the pyramids. And it's been suggested over the years that those three pyramids are pictures of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not sure that's necessarily so, but it's been put forward. And as I was going through Revelation, like 21, trying to comprehend how um, New Jerusalem would operate, its size, its dimensions, so on and so forth, one writer suggested that it was like a double cube. And I thought, double cube, three pyramids in Egypt, yes, very much used today in the sense of the Illuminati and paganism, so on and so forth. But maybe, just perhaps, before the Egyptians came onto the scene, if the account or if the theory that Job was somehow responsible for their design, it makes you wonder if these people from 11.4 are attempting to copy 
very crudely, I know, but they are attempting to copy the pyramids. I don't know. It's just a theory. But six, the Lord makes it very clear how the people have become one. And you think about the Catholics, they speak about being part of the one holy Roman Catholic apostolic church, so on and so forth. And they claim to be scriptural and yet take them to Acts chapter 2 and ask them, do they follow the last few verses of Acts chapter 2? Do they sell all their properties? Do they pull? Do they share all their resources? And of course, you know the answer is no. Their bishops, their cardinals live in palaces. And uh, some of those bishops, some of those cardinals have chauffeur-driven cars. But it's wrong to attempt to be one. Once you are born again, and John 17 speaks about this, you are one in Christ. You don't need to join a church system. You don't need to sign up to a creed. You don't need to do anything. Once you are born again, you are in Christ. You are perfect. You are complete in Christ. In fact, Colossians 2.10 says just that. You are complete in Christ. What more do you need? And yet for many people, many religious people, I'm afraid to say Christ is not enough for them. So I think for today, just under an hour, I'm somewhat surprised. <laughs> I thought this may take longer, but I think for today, I've covered the main points of Scripture. And what I would just do for the next few moments, if you will allow me, is to briefly recap what I've looked at this morning to make sure that I've covered all of the main points. So from 4.26, Seth is able to, by the grace of God, produce a son, and as a result, men start to call upon the name of the Lord. Man wants to be recognized on the one hand. Man wants to know the meaning of life, and yet for many people, they seem to receive any message, any guru, any route apart from the one true way, the truth and the life being Christ, and the gate being found via a person. The promises back in the Old Testament to people such as Noah, and I'm running ahead of myself again, <laughs> come from a particular person. So the person makes a promise back in the Old Testament, and Noah and co believe the promise made by that person. Fast forward to the New Testament, that person is Jesus Christ. We believe on a person, New Covenant. The person that we believe on in the New Covenant gave the promises back in the Old Covenant. It's going to be grace from the beginning to the end. How Christ would dispense grace, how he would call people to believe on him, would vary. And again, if you get a chance, look at Acts of the Apostles, different people coming different ways to the Lord, but they all believed on him in order to be saved. 5, 1 and 2, you've got in the day when the Lord, Father, Son and Spirit created man in the likeness of God and he made them male and female, blessed them and called their name Adam. Eve would be called Eve by Adam, but Apart from that, she has no surname, she has no second name, she has no identity per se. She comes under 
her husband's covering. And I made a very brief comment some time ago, maybe 50 minutes ago, that for a woman who is saved, if she hasn't got a husband to give her some kind of a spiritual covering, then maybe she needs to be covered by her father. And if she hasn't got a father, <coughs> excuse me, if she hasn't got a father, maybe she needs to find an uncle or a cousin. And if she hasn't got a cousin or an uncle or a relative who is saved, she needs to find a brother in the Lord to give her some kind of a covering. What I am noticing more and more, and I guess this is going to continue due to feminism, which isn't just outside the church, it's very much alive and kicking inside of the church, are women having ministries and are speaking about pretty substantial subjects and they have no one to cover them. And that may sound somewhat chauvinistic, but Adam and Eve had a covering. New Testament, the, the, uh, the man, 1 Corinthians 11, is the head of the family. If the woman isn't married, she comes under a brother or brother's covering. It may be she knows some elders or some brothers in the Lord who she is affiliated with. She comes under their covering. If she can't find brothers or a brother to give her some kind of a covering, she has no ministry. It's as simple as that. You don't find women in Scripture going about their own business, doing their own thing. Like I say, feminism hasn't just destroyed secularism or the world in general, but it's also crept into the body of Christ. From six... Uh, three down to eight, the Lord is going to wipe every man, woman and child off the face of the earth. And that's going to involve probably five to ten million people. Children, elderly people, disabled people. And people say, that's awful. Why would he do such a thing? Because he's holy, he's just, and he will not tolerate sin. If people could understand that, if people could understand what it's like to be in the presence of this great being who's lived for all of eternity, has no beginning, has no end, and yet has this great sense of love, and he won't overlook sin. If they could get that clear in their minds, I think we would have more people saved today. So 120, 120 years 120 years has been earmarked out by the Lord for Noah to build an ark. Now, it's also been suggested by some people that pre the flood, man, like Adam and Eve, like Seth, like Noah and co, was a lot taller than man is today. Could be so, I don't know. I was able to look at Revelation, uh, I think it was 21.9, I'll just go there quickly. Uh, this past Sunday and it speaks about the measurements of an angel 21.17 excuse me and it speaks about this wall which from memory is half a mile in height and it says here how he measured the wall thereof an hundred and forty and four cubits according to the measure of a man that is of the angel and it's been suggested that angels in heaven are huge. An average man 
in the UK is around five foot seven, five foot eight. If you make it to six foot, six one, six two, you're pretty tall. I think the tallest man I ever met was when I was at school. One of my science teachers was six foot four, six foot five, huge chap. But if angels, Revelation 21, 17, are 144 cubits, like uh, 264 feet high, and if we become angels, 1 John chapter 3, when we get into eternity, or angel-like, then it's just possible that we could be huge, <laughs> massive, because New Jerusalem, if you take the time to measure it, is 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, and the same if you were to draw a line at the bottom of the base. You could suggest it's a cube-shaped object. So you could suggest it's a double pyramid, pointing up and pointing down, or a cube-shaped object. I go for the latter. But New Jerusalem, if you were to lay it flat on the ground, is going to be around four and a half thousand miles. That's probably going to be five, six, seven times the size of the UK, maybe ten times, maybe slightly off, but my point is this. New Jerusalem is going to be huge. And one book that I consulted suggested that in New Jerusalem there are 42 trillion rooms. Incredible. But from Genesis, you've got this ark being prepared. People are going to board it like eight souls, like an unspecified amount of animals. But all around this ark, people are going to be Marrying, partying, enjoying life, right up until Noah boards the ark. Very much a picture of the rapture. People are going to be marrying, partying, doing this and doing that, right up until the rapture of the church, and probably right up until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never mind the seven-year tribulation, never mind two and a half billion people being just wiped off the face of the earth, directly and indirectly, Due to the anger of the Lord, the fury of the Lord, people are going to remain uh, indifferent to the Lord. Noah finds grace, God's righteousness at Christ's expense, in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord decides to pick Noah and his sons, of course, to repopulate the earth. And from Noah and his sons, you will find the white man, you will find the black man you will find the Oriental man. All the races on the earth today all come from one of Noah's sons. Evolution is a hoax. Evolution is a great lie. And due to bestiality, no doubt being uh, endemic around this time, such also get wiped off the face of the earth. Going back to chapter 1, 26, I think it was, how they were to have dominion. They were to be top dog over the animal world, the plant world, but also over themselves. And when they failed to get their house in order, they were punished severely. Seven 
If I look at 7.16, here's a great scripture from 7.16. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him up. Once you get into Christ, you can't get out of Christ. Once you get saved, there's no reverse gear. Once you are born again, you are born again. Yes, you may backslide, of course. You may drift into neutral for a period of time, of course. But once you are saved, you are saved. You belong to Christ. And he belongs to you. The Lord, being Elohim in Hebrew, plural, Father, Son, and Spirit, shut him, Noah, and family into the ark. And they, and they alone, were spared and everyone else would find themselves being destroyed. Once the waters had receded, Noah leaves the ark with his family, which I guess would be pictured, Matthew 24, tribulation saints are gathered by the angels, which are sent from heaven, and they go up to Jerusalem, Matthew 25, to meet the king. And he separates the goats from the sheep, and of course, you know the rest, the sheep are the redeemed, the goats are the lost, and the sheep go into the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on the new earth, and the goats go off into hellfire. An altar gets built, 8.20, it produces a great smell, 21, which I didn't read, and that is accepted by the Lord. But you can turn it down, of course, if you want. You can say, well, I don't want to be a part of this animal sacrifice, which incidentally will be reinitiated during the thousand-year reign of Christ for those on the new earth, not New Jerusalem. Okay, fine. You can turn that down, or you can turn your nose up at it. But if you don't want someone to do something for you, if you don't want an animal to be offered on your part or on your behalf, then offer yourself up. And I put it to you that you won't want to do that. 9.6 promise has been made that whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man should his blood be shed capital punishment which Christ also would uphold he would say whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword Paul would tell you from uh, Romans uh, 13 that those that take the sword like a police officer or a soldier in the form of a gun today do so as ministers of the Lord they're not vigilantes for in the image of God made he man Everyone is made in the image of God, whether you're saved or unsaved. And again, that's why there is so much suffering around the world today. 20 down to 24, 25, 26, probably even going into 27 and 28, speaks about Noah falling from grace, getting intoxicated. Listen, there's no infallibility in Scripture. There's no impeccability in Scripture. The best of the best, when they were tested, would fail. Only Christ Jesus, when he was tested, would not fail. Only Christ Jesus, when he was tested, would succeed. That's why he's called the second and final Adam. And it go back to Muhammad, go back to Buddha, go back to any man or woman, dead or alive, past or present, living on any continent, during any time of history. Read about them. Check them out. And you will find so many problems with such people. And then take the time to scrutinize Christ, and you will really struggle, I mean really struggle, to find anything to criticize him over. But Noah would be tested in this sense, 
and would fail like Adam, would fail like Cain, and one of his sons couldn't wait to brag to his brothers how his father has just fallen, has become drunk, is naked, and he goes in to his brothers and says, hey, guess what? And of course, you know the rest, just read it to you. And they jump to their feet, get a blanket, cover their father's nakedness, but it's later made known to Noah, or Noah is aware of what has occurred, and he is infuriated with his son's behavior. And I'll say this also, if I may, that had Ham abused his father in such a wicked way, Noah would have executed him. I believe that. And his sons would have helped him to execute Ham for being such a wicked reprobate. But like I say, people that wish to hold to such a belief also seem to hold to uh, the notion, the false notion that the devil was able to get Eve pregnant, another pernicious doctrine. But nobody made Ham do what he did, and as a result, Ham is cursed, and Nimrod becomes his grandson, is also cursed. You've got two lines in Scripture. You've got the line of the serpents, and you've got the line of the Saviour. And for most people, as I look over history as a lay historian, they sadly and tragically are in the line of the serpents. And they will die in that line and go to hell forever. Like I say, many are called, but few are chosen. 11.4 going into 6 and 7. Uh, speaks about those on the earth coming together, trying to reach heaven their own way, and perhaps are trying to recreate or mimic or duplicate the pyramids, which perhaps, don't quote me, but perhaps had been built already by Job and Co. I know that history would suggest that the Egyptians, thanks to uh, slavery, built the pyramids. I don't know, maybe that's so. A lot of secular history is questionable. But if the suggestion, if the theory, if the hypothesis is correct concerning Job being the author of the pyramid is correct, then you've got possibly a crude attempt to duplicate the pyramids. Verse 6, the Lord says, forget it, I'm not going to allow this to continue. He comes down and he strikes them with different languages different tongues, and of course you know the rest, off they go into uh, different parts of the world, and we get today's languages as a result from this account. 